How blessed are the sorrowful. They shall find consolation. How blessed are those of gentle spirit. They shall have the earth for their possession. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst to see right prevail. They shall be satisfied. How blessed are those whose hearts are pure. They shall see God. Speak up! Quiet, Mum. Well, I can't hear a thing. Let's go to stoning. You can go to a stoning any time. Oh, come on, Brian. Could you be quiet, please? What was that? I don't know. I was too busy talking a big nose. I think it was blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. See, if you haven't been going on, we'd have heard that, big nose. Hey, say that once more, I'll smash your bloody face in. Oh. Better keep listening. Might be a bit about blessed are the big noses. Oh, lay off him. I'm a big fan of the line. Obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. It's a bit of a reminder to stay humble when we think that we're interpreting the words of Jesus, maybe in a moment like this, and with any form of wisdom and discernment. Now, that being said, blessed are the cheesemakers may not be the exact quote from Jesus that we have recorded in the scriptures. And whether or not you've seen Monty Python's version, uh, you may have heard the original line that they're spoofing. You know, according to Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, you know, Jesus proclaimed to his early audience, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You know, but for all of the ways that this passage tends to be either you know, ignored or glossed over or you know, assumed, you know, our understanding of it may not be actually that much further along than what this Monty Python crew take out of it. And if you're anything like me, uh, when you hear this line, the overarching impression is something akin to like Jesus giving you know, a condescending like, pat on the head to people who are you know, too gentle to fend for themselves, maybe. You know, oh, you're sweet. You know, maybe who aren't even really a part of you know, life or the action of life, and they're just off to the side, you know, kind of ineffectively instructing people who are actually in the thick of it and clashing. You know, cool it, guys, you know, unheard and ignored and pretty ineffective. And Jesus, because he's loving and compassionate, he sees these peacemakers and he offers them the kindness of you know, naming them and offering them some consolation. Blessed are the peacemakers. But there may be more to it than that. You know, the blessing of peacemakers may actually be consequential enough, you know, powerful enough to overwhelm the most frantic values that the world desperately tells us to cling to. And instead, anchor us you know, moment by moment in a completely different reality, the immovable and intimate presence of our loving creator. Now in the spring of, or in the winter rather, of 1569 in the village of Vusparen in the Netherlands, a man named Dirk Wilms he lowered himself on a rope made out of knotted rags uh, from a prison window. You may have heard this story. Dirk had been thrown in prison for his faith convictions that weren't in line with the religious establishment of the day. You know, others holding the same convictions as Dirk had already been executed, but now Dirk had managed to, to cleverly escape. 
So he lowers himself the rest of the way down, uh, down the prison wall. He lets himself drop on the ground. It's there's snow. And next to him is a thinly frozen pond, more of a lake. And that lay between him and freedom, and it was the only thing. And so he edged his way onto the surface, and in a strangely fortunate twist, uh, he was pretty light, thanks in part to the meager prison rations he'd been surviving on. And so the ice actually held. You know, by now a guard had spotted Dirk and had pursued him to the edge of the pond, and, and seeing Dirk managing his way across had followed suit. Now any doubt about Dirk's escape was erased when he heard the guard behind him break through the ice over deep water. So flailing in the icy water, you know, the guard cried out for help. And none of his fellow guards, who by now uh, had heard the commotion and had stopped short at the edge of the pond, could reach him. And so as he struggled, Dirk paused. You know, and stopping his own life or death escape, he turned around. You know, edging his way back across the further compromised ice, you know, Dirk reached out and somehow managed to pull his captor to safety. What led Dirk Welms to this kind of perspective? For Dirk and his community at the time, there was a specific element of the life of Jesus that they found inescapable and compelling. And it was woven through every part of Jesus' life, from before his birth to after his resurrection. You know, it was world-changing. You know, by inviting people to change themselves and the ways that they perceived themselves and everyone around them. You know, it had the power to eliminate fear and uncertainty, to immediately transform enemies into allies. It was Jesus' way of peace. Now, Matthew, the first of Jesus' four known biographers, had been a tax collector for Rome, you know, arguably the most powerful empire in the history uh, of the world up till Jesus' day, you know, ruling over the land of Israel. So as Matthew tells the story of uh, Jesus' birth, and then his emergence as an adult, ready to unfold the role that he was born for. He describes in detail Jesus' first proclamation about what he was going to be all about. What was his leadership going to be like? And people were eager. They were even desperate to know. You know when someone has shown that they're destined for power, you know, authority, greatness, and we all want to know, you know, what are they all about? You For any sports fans out there, a couple of cases in point, Connor Bedard uh, and Victor Wembenyama, you know, hockey and basketball phenoms, respectively. So these guys are both teenagers, uh, but because they're both going to have incredible athletic careers, you know, we want to know, you know, what they have to say, you know, what they like, what their favorite food is. You know, Connor's from Vancouver. His favorite is sushi. And Wemby is French, but his is breakfast tacos. You know, who knew? So good to know. You know. By the time that Jesus has emerged in public, people want to hear what he has to say what he's all about. I mean, the signs are there that he may be the king that the people of Israel have been waiting for. And he's from the line of David, you know, Israel's greatest king, and the one who has promised to have descendants who would rule forever. He's from Bethlehem. Uh, you know, he's born there. And where the ruler, the shepherd of God's people, was said to be from and was going to be from. You know, somehow he's also from the town of Nazareth where he was raised and where it was prophesied that the eventual savior of the Israelites would be from. You know, Jesus emerges. You know, he begins rallying people to himself. He physically manifests the power of healing. 
you know, from town to town as he's going. And the news spreads and the crowds gather. And when the crowds reach a critical mass, you know, Jesus goes up the side of a mountain. He turns around. And the crowds are ready, ready to hear that whatever he has to say, you know, what is he going to be all about? As a newly emerging leader would do, as a would-be ruler should do, you know, Jesus describes what things are going to be looking like now that he's inaugurating a new kingdom. So right off the bat, he names who this kingdom belongs to. You know, now that it's not going to belong to the Roman oppressors any longer. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' audience hears this. You know, they recognize themselves in this. You know, one modern translation puts it, you know, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. I mean, okay, the Jewish people, they're oppressed and they are at the end of their rope. But this is not exactly what they're expecting to hear. You know, especially as Jesus goes on. And he names, you know, blessing for those who mourn and are meek and are merciful. This is not what you anticipate from the new leader who will stand in opposition to the power of Rome. And then Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So Jesus' listeners are ready to hear that he's gonna defeat their enemies to achieve peace. Instead, he invites his followers into the action, the embodiment of peace. You know, it's a strange moment and, and we shouldn't miss it because it's a shift that defines the followers of Jesus. The action that the followers of Jesus are called to is peacemaking. And the blessing is actually in the gift of that lifestyle. Now, our expectations are totally different than this. You know, what we expect uh, is that blessing is the peace that will come. And the action that's required to get there is, is this violent, frenetic effort. So let me say it again, okay? The action that followers of Jesus are called to is peacemaking. And the blessing is in the gift of that lifestyle. The gift that we get to live lives of peacemaking. Like if this isn't earth shattering for us, that's because we've tuned ourselves out from it. You know, or we've acclimatized ourselves into an incorrect version of this invitation. You know, the lifestyle of peace has a specific term in the Hebrew scriptures, you know, the Old Testament. It's the word shalom. You know, shalom is difficult to describe, but we all know it, to see it or experience it. You know, for example, you know, can you think of those rare moments uh, in your life where everything, you know, absolutely everything is right with the world? You're calm, you're relaxed, your mind and your body, your circumstances are exactly what resonates most deeply with you. Everything stops. You don't need a thing. You know, St. Augustine, an African bishop from the fourth century, describes shalom as the ultimate vocation, action, or what some translate as like employment of followers of Jesus. And he calls it living in a perpetual Sabbath where we as he says, rest and see, see and love, and love and praise. You know, the author Dallas Willard calls it the restoration of all things, you know, utter fullness where there's, as he says, 
repose, yes, but not as quiescence, passivity, or eternal fixity. Instead, peace as wholeness, you know, as a, func as a fullness of function, as restful but unending creativity, you know, that continuously approaches, but it never exhausts the goodness and greatness of the triune personality of God, its source. In the book of Isaiah, shalom is described simply as quietness and confidence forever. Shalom. Peace with ourselves, with God, with everyone and with everything. And it's shalom that's the invitation of Jesus. And it's because it's an invitation to this, you know, quietness and confidence forever that Jesus' kingdom is so utterly revolutionary because it doesn't depend on any external factors to be in place for anyone to receive shalom. You know, unlike worldly peace, it's not for later after the violence, you know, and, and depending on defeating enemies. You know, it's for now and forever. So this changes the way that we interact, you know, with ourselves and with our enemies. For ourselves, shalom is receiving the gift of seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. You know, this too, you know, it's a never-ending and beautiful picture of being, you know, for example, loved and precious and honored in God's sight, as it says in the book of Isaiah. And because we receive this in shalom, our shalom extends this outwards towards others. And we're invited to see others in the same way. You know, at this point, our English term, you know, peacemaking, you may seem a bit crass, but this is peacemaking. So for Dirk Wilms, his identity as a peacemaker, as someone who embraced shalom and wanted to pass it on, had a direct impact on how he viewed his enemy and how he interacted with him, which was completely contrary to the expectations of his culture, or pretty much any culture, well, except for the kingdom of heaven that Jesus inaugurates. This perspective is completely in line with Jesus' invitation. I mean, Dirk was human, he wasn't perfect, but if he was living in receptivity to the peace of Christ, to shalom, he couldn't help but experience this man drowning behind him in a different way. I mean, he wasn't seeing him as an enemy, but as someone loved and precious and honored in God's sight, and so in his sight as well. And if Dirk was embracing being at peace with himself, with God, and with this fellow image bearer of God, then his reaction to him, it makes sense. I mean, in this kingdom, this kind of sacrifice makes sense. But what does this mean on a daily basis? You know, living as peacemakers, as people embracing shalom, you know, isn't all, you know, waiting around for the opportunity for grand gestures of sacrifice. It's a bit more prosaic than that and a lot more immediate. A few weeks back, we recited what's been called uh, the Prayer of St. Francis. It's often also called the Prayer for Peace. There's a line in the prayer that basically says, O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be understood as to understand. Now, I don't know how that struck you when we prayed it uh, or how it strikes you now, but I find that line so challenging. Okay, when's the last time that you were like misunderstood? I mean, not because you were so intelligent that people couldn't even you know, comprehend the lofty things that you knew, but I mean like misunderstood because people were wrong about what they thought your intentions were or what you had actually said or done. How'd you react to that? 
If you're like me, you're incredibly indignant. You wanted to make sure that you, nobody could have thought that, that those were your intentions or that you, know, you would have said something like that or done something like that. You're anxious to make sure. Maybe you're even angry. Maybe you start to push back. Maybe you question their intentions. You know, maybe you experience this with a loved one, somebody you know really well. You know, why would the author of this prayer ask God to help them seek to understand others rather than to be understood? And we wanna be understood. I think that the answer to that may be connected to shalom. The reason that shalom is an invitation to quietness and confidence is because it does not require us to clamor to get what we want or what we think that we need, you know, to win peace through domination. If we see uh, ourselves the way that God sees us, you know, as precious and honored in God's sight, as loved by God, secure in the midst of everything and anything, then we don't need to fight to win peace. As Jesus says, he doesn't give as the world gives. His peace, he freely gives. And because it's freely given, you know, I'm not in competition with others for peace. It belongs to all of us. I can be secure in my identity with God and not be threatened, not be defensive. Suddenly, instead of being indignant at being misunderstood, I'm secure. I'm at peace regardless. This eagerness to understand rather than be understood is vital in peacemaking because it's often others who will be the ones to reveal to us when there's a lack of peace. Now it's others who reveal um, who reveal the peace that I'm experiencing is actually a false peace. Where it's others who have been subjugated for the peace that I am experiencing. That's not peace. That's not shalom. This can be true at a personal, relational level. It can also be true at communal, systemic level as well. So consider the various experiences of different indigenous peoples in and around our communities. You know, the land defenders, you know, we talk about at 1492 Land Back Lane, one hour from here, you know, they're sacrificing daily to defend the land that was given to them in a treaty 250 years ago. Now, I'm not experiencing any conflict related to this land defense. I may barely be aware that it's happening. But people are struggling in ways that are related to me, to my history, to my government, to the structures that help me feel safe, but which are causing my neighbors to be unheard and destabilized and unsafe. Now, that's a lack of shalom that I need to be made aware of and to actually listen and respond to. It may be easy enough to imagine that you know, there's peace because I don't feel oppressed, but it's not a true peace if it's not peace for others. You know, this same thing happens at a relational level as well. You know, when someone in our life names that there's a lack of peace, that there's hurt. You know, how often when we hear about someone else's hurt uh, that's connected to us, do we try to explain it away? Again, do we either deny wrongdoing or, or we simply name what our intentions actually were and how, I mean, because of these intentions, I mean, the other person shouldn't feel hurt. Like, honestly, that's me, like weekly, if not daily, that's what I do. But the shalom of Jesus has the ability to remind me who I am and centers me on how Jesus sees me beyond what I've done. 
beyond how people perceive me, and then can't help but extend from me to the people around me. The work that it takes to do this is anything but weak and ineffective. This is as powerful a life as there is. In all these circumstances, Jesus simply reminds us that we're invited to receive, that the peace that the world offers is one-sided. And in that one-sidedness, everyone misses out on a peace that's personal, a peace that's offered, a peace that's shared. For those willing to extend peace, you know, to sacrifice the need to, to be understood. There's the blessing of settling in to the shalom that God offers instead. Quietness, confidence forever, and the knowledge of who we are and whose family we're a part of. As Jesus puts it, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus is putting everything into perspective for us. The empires of the world can offer national citizenship that put us at odds with those who are not fellow citizens. The kingdom of Jesus offers us a family where everyone is welcome. So Dirk Wilms had been unjustly imprisoned. And having won his freedom back, he made a choice when he realized that the guard was going to drown. So, okay, after making his way back across the ice, helping pull the guard out, at the prompting of the guard superiors, Dirk was actually grabbed by that same guard, and he was once again arrested. A few months later, he was executed. For those in this community who recorded the story 450 years ago, friends of Dirk's, there isn't a sense of tragedy about what happened to Dirk. There's a sense of different priority, as they wrote that Dirk died with great steadfastness, great steadfastness, having commended his soul into the hands of God. Shalom. You know, Dirk had different options available to him, and what he chose uh, was done in a framework of values that don't necessarily line up well with the cultural values around him. You know, they didn't line up with the cultural context five centuries later. But the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, that he named to all those followers as he stood on that mountainside, didn't fit with the way that the world operates either. You know, it was a kingdom that was meant to slowly steadily gain ground, not the ground of domination, but of shalom in lives and then between lives. Now that choice is available to us as well. And for the next few weeks, we're gonna spend time examining what it means to choose lives of peacemaking, of shalom. Now that shalom is available to you and I right now. And my prayer for all of us is that today, we actively receive and actively give the blessing of peacemaking.